story. What is it? It's telling of an event, either true or fictional. The story that I want to tell you is true and it's my story. All my life I've been on a run and somehow I always know when something bad is going to happen. Probably because I've been watching and making movies. You know when you're watching a movie, you can sometimes guess what will happen next. And when you're making it, you know what will happen next. But in the last 20 months, living as a refugee in a whole shit detention center, I have lost my ability to guess. You see, when I write the scripts, I always know the ending. I always know how protagonists will break free. But as a protagonist of this film, I don't know if I'm going to break free. I don't know how my story as a refugee filmmaker will end. The story you heard a moment ago is the official teaser of The Citizen of Moria, a documentary by Jawad Mir and Ahmed Ibrahimi. We are starting the season two of Fractured with an extremely important topic. One that is still so relevant, even though the place we will talk about doesn't exist anymore. Citizen of Moria presents Ahmed's experiences in Moria as an asylum seeker, but also as a filmmaker who had to flee Afghanistan, leaving his whole life behind. And today we will speak to both Jawad and Ahmed about the movie and also about the camp. So Jawad, Ahmed, welcome to Fractured. Thank you for having me, Sonia. Thank you so much, Sonia. First of all, guys, I would like to uh, give a full disclosure to our listeners. We all know each other. With Ahmed, we actually have been friends for years now uh, as we met each other on Lesbos. And to start the podcast, I would like to ask both of you, why did you decide to make this movie? And first, specifically to you, Jawad, what was the inspiration you had to make the movie? And why, actually? How did you come uh, to know about Moria? You are Canadian, so the issue of Moria is probably not that well known in Canada as it is so far away from Lesbos. Right. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, Moria even now is not that well known, um, you know, let alone four years ago or almost five years ago. Um, I was actually looking to do a film on the Syrian refugee crisis uh, ever since 2015 when the whole influx uh, started. I didn't know anything about Lesbos. I didn't know much about uh, that Greece was sort of part of that. I didn't know anything about Moria. Um, and I tried several times going through different um, NGOs, organizations, trying to find some connections. I did that for about two years. Nothing happened. Uh, I just couldn't find anybody. And then I just kind of, you know, forgot about it and gave up. 
And then I came across the story um, of a Syrian refugee. I think he was stuck on Malaysian or Indonesia airport, Hassan Al-Kantar. Um, and I was really intrigued by that story because of the story of uh, there was a real Iranian uh, individual who was, I think, in New York, who was stuck for several years. And there was a film that was inspired by his story, The Terminal, by Steven Spielberg, starring Tom Hanks. So I really wanted to tackle that. But he put me in touch with a woman named Lori Cooper. And that sort of initiated my introduction to Ahmed. You know, Lori said that I just met this wonderful guy named Ahmed. Talk to him. He's a filmmaker. And that was it. Um, that Ahmed and I had a conversation, one or two maybe at the most, and he agreed and that that was it. And that sort of took us both on a journey for to make this film. And for me personally, in the very beginning, it was about just trying to make people aware of Moria. But things sort of as time passed, evolved into many other things. Okay, so let's go to this wonderful guy, Ahmed. Ahmed, why did you think making this movie is something you should do at this stage of your life when I imagine so many other issues probably occupied your mind? I think by that time when uh, Jawad approached me about making movie about myself and about Moria, uh, you're right, like so many times, so many things was happening in my mind, in my life. And also it was a little bit scary for me as well to to show all my story to the world, to the people. But uh, the things was, uh, because by that time, like um, many people, many uh, journalists were coming there, but they were there only for few hours or a few like one two days like the whole story like wasn't cover uh, they were just there for their own point of view and for uh, they were looking for something what they've been sent for something like that and the whole story wasn't cover and i was thinking to be like it would be a good idea to to share this story to the world, to show like the world what's happening here in Greece, in Moria. I absolutely agree. I remember those journalists literally flying in the morning and leaving in the evening and covering just from a perspective of those short news, something happened, another fire in Moria. We just record that and nothing else, right? There is no depth in the story. But Ahmed, you left Afghanistan way before the Taliban took over power in the country. And I was working on Lesbos at the time when you arrived back in 2018, right? So I remember uh, telling people uh, that Syrians are no longer the main nationality on the island, that Afghans actually are. And everybody was extremely surprised. People kept asking me, why would Afghans seek asylum in Europe if there is no active war in Afghanistan and American and international forces are present in the country? So it seems natural to start this conversation with you explaining a bit the reasons why you left Afghanistan. 
in 2000, I think in 2001, like uh, America attacked Afghanistan and uh, took over and Taliban, like real Taliban government wasn't exist anymore in Afghanistan. But in after a few years, like they reunited the Taliban forces, they reunited again and they started attacking people, um, government and again, like like every day, almost every week, every day, like there were a big tourist attack happening in somewhere in Afghanistan, mostly in Kabul. And then they start attacking like people in the mosque, start attacking people in the wedding, in the school. And like this was happening all the time. And there were a program by government, it was peace. And we had to make a documentary about uh, people who joined peace, about the Taliban who joined peace, and how joining peace or reflecting their life, that they, they don't have to be like in the mountains all the time. And it's like government offers them some small jobs, something like that. We made that. Uh, documentary and one of our main actor was Molotov John, the one of the Taliban leader. And then after that documentary release in TVs, it was like, I think we had about 26, 27 TV station around Afghanistan and they released in all TVs. And it was like big things for Taliban. And then they threatened everybody and we have to leave Afghanistan. Like this was happening all the time because like I think since 2005, six when they start attacking people, uh, they grow up and we we left Afghanistan around, it was 2015. And by that time they were in a lot of power and people were thinking that Taliban will come back in 2014 actually because um, because uh, America and Europe they wanted to leave Afghanistan in 2014 and everyone was afraid of that but that didn't happen you you left Afghanistan you um, crossed to Lesbos and as you were saying several times, you, you didn't have really a clear idea what to expect, or rather you were confronted with what you witnessed there. You thought you're gonna stay on Lesbos for several days and then be transferred to mainland. However, you stayed there for two years. And Moria was a camp built for 2,500 people. It's a former military base for those who don't know, but Already when I uh, arrived there in 2017, it exceeded this number. And in 2018, people started moving out to the jungle. And just to explain, jungle was nothing else but an olive grove where people started putting tents and just lived there simply because the camp was so over capacity that they couldn't simply fit inside. And the conditions in the jungle were very difficult. 
but I'm not the right person to speak about this, but you are. So could you describe how was the camp? The condition of the camp was, uh, was very bad. Like if you lived home and suddenly you're living in the jungle, like maybe maybe people think like oh it's like really maybe cool living in the tent with a lot of people and it's like summer but maybe for the first days you think it's like that but when it's like um, when you're living in that kind of situation for years it would be much more difficult and like in in the place like when you don't have electricity, when you don't have uh, water, when you don't have washroom, when you don't have like hygiene, when you cannot work at all, when you have to stay all the time in a camp. And when there is no doctor to visit you, when there is like when when there are some fascists to attack you, when when nothing is safe, like it is very difficult and it makes you mentally very sick and it makes people sick. I, I remember one person in Moria telling me once that um, the camp life is all about lines. You wait in line for food, then you wait in line to see uh, UNHCR, you wait in line uh, for food again, you wait in line to see a doctor or somebody who serves as a doctor, uh, you wait in line to asylum services, you wait in line for food again. Uh, so I, I'm wondering if you can describe a little bit how uh, everyday life looks like in, in a place like Moria. Like in the very early in the morning, about uh, in 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 summer, like about five thirty four. Sometimes people were start going to the food lines, and they were like waiting, waiting, waiting until eight or eight thirty. When the food was coming, it it, it wasn't food. It was just a croissant and also with. Um, with a bottle of water for each people. And they were taking their foods by 8.30 when people, when some of people were a bit late, they were like in a food line until 9.30 to 10. And then they were going back to their tents, eating, washing their faces, like cleaning and then Maybe if they have some appointment to the asylum office or to the doctor, again, they're going to the line, staying. Maybe like they already have been sent one of their family members to the line already to, to take their line. And maybe you can finish around, maybe if, if it was like uh, possible, you finish around 12 and for sure one of your one of the family member should be in the food line like you 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 cannot do like uh, your doctor appointment and your asylum process and you cannot go to the food line again it it it's it was so difficult because like the lines were too big and and you have to like if your friend if you're two people in a tent living in a tent 
you should say like today I have disappointments and you have to go to the food line and bring food for both of us. It is like this. You cannot you cannot manage all because because by the time that I was living there, it was about like eleven thousand people inside and around Moria, and then it it grows like. After a few months, it was like 2,000, 13,000. It reached to 23,000, I think. And, but the doctor wasn't like real doctors. Like they, they won't treat, in, uh, treatment you. They were just seeing what happening and then they will give you some paracetamol and they ask you to take a rest and drink some water. They were just for a very small issue, not for the big things. For the, like if you have some serious problem, they would send you to the Mytilene hospital, but you have to have a translator with you, otherwise they won't see you. I heard, so, I heard some stories that people died because of don't have a translator. There was an old guy like, I, I took his picture and then few days later few days later I heard that he died because he didn't have translator in the Mytilene hospital and there are some more his, his stories like this and also the food wasn't something that you can eat like the food were raw and also he, uh, there were some um, insect or you could find something inside the food and the washrooms also in the morning in the and in the evening it was so crowded because like maybe there were like one toilet per hundred people i think something more or less like that and you 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 didn't have electricity and heater for the winter and it is like when you you're finishing your food your your breakfast around 10 30 and you have to go back to the food line again and you have to stay for in, in the food line for two three hours to get your lunch and then you will be back in your tent about two o'clock and then if you have nothing else to do like about five o'clock you have to go to the food line again if you have something else you will miss your food line or you will miss your appointment it is something like that but you lived your life in moria uh, also engaged in many media projects and volunteering and the part of the movie with the mouse uh, shows your constant connection to filmmaking and I really love it so much that I would like to play an audio recording of one of the moments you interacted with the mouse. It's two o'clock in the morning for tonight for second time I tried to uh, take mouse out from my tent. Mm -hmm. 
We didn't kill the mouse that night. I'm afraid it will... Um, Mr. Jingles. You know that mouse from the Green Mile? I'm afraid Mr. Jingles will come back. Um, Ahmed, you were also the main cinematographer on the movie. You filmed inside Moria mostly with your cell phone. How were you received by other residents of the camp while filming? It was difficult because uh, most of the people, they were afraid of this filming is, is having some uh, negative effect on their, on their uh, asylum case because they were afraid if Greek government they see they see them in the movie and then because of that that they they are protesting about against Greek government and then they do they reject their cases most of the people were uh, afraid of this that's why like when I was trying to film something everybody was shouting no don't film don't film no film my friend no film my friend and this was one of the biggest challenging and even of like most of the time I was recording myself but people were still shouting no film my friend and but there was like they were a bit open like more open with the uh, with the jo European journalist <laughs> Yeah, Irony, right? Uh, not open yeah. to to their own person, but open more to the fancy journalists who are coming to record for a half a day or something of that kind. I understand. Yeah, it was it was challenging, and also it was challenging to film myself. Like, yeah, maybe sometimes you you are so tired and you don't want to do anything else and you're so angry about something and and then you have to film yourself for the documentary <laughs> it was difficult but this also is sort of the rough beauty of the movie that it is so authentic authentic it is so real you know and it's made by you and and, and in those conditions so this is where i think the the power comes from but for most people, entering Moria for the very first time is kind of a shock. And I'm not only talking about refugees. This is obvious that this is a shock for them, that this is where they will be living now for several years. But also the foreigners, they come, they see those big numbers in this small surface. They see the poor conditions, the lack of services. Jawad, how was it for you to enter Moria for the first time? to see it, to touch it, to smell it. When I first read about Moria, I believe it was in Al Jazeera or some major or Guardian, one of those two media outlets article. And the way they presented it, it was not like a news story. It was like more like a feature uh, story. And they had like these super high res images. And when I was going through it, I literally thought I was looking at Palestine or, you know, somewhere in Afghanistan or maybe even somewhere in Iran or Africa, because, you know, Europe, you don't 
you don't consider you don't living in the west for a long time you don't imagine something like that can be in europe um so when i went to moria for the first time it was it was shocking in a very different way than you know the the fences and the barbed wires and the olive garden and people just all over the place i mean that itself was crazy but i think what got to me the most um were the little kids that were playing around with each other in a situation which is so dire and crazy and whether they knew about it or whether they were just being kids that got to me like that that itself was the most emotional thing for me um you know but yeah Le moria camp itself like you know when you just look at like mud you look at you look at logos like uh your relief unhcr i mean these are like you know international brands for the lack of a better word non-profit brand and you see their logo in in the ground and people stepping on it it just didn't seem right um and i i just didn't i did not understand that in the beginning that how is that possible um uh, but yeah it it's just seeing people kids especially but also people just going about their regular business and um and then for me one of the thing that ahmed when i you know when i saw ahmed in that world i don't know i mean i i do know now but at the time it was like is ahmed just sucking it up and dealing with it and being happy or is that its personality and it was really tough to see that um because when you're in that situation either you get used to it which is which sucks but um or you just have to make the best out of it and i truly believe with ahmed his journey in moria afghanistan his life led in you know it went through literally up and down hiccups and chaos and left and right and center but he made the most of it and i think that's what differentiates him with so many other people i'm not trying to draw a comparison but he just kind of saw an opportunity anywhere um you know when when people see the film like anywhere throughout his life he saw an opportunity he kind of seized it and i think that's what differentiates people not just refugees just in, normally in the world from successful people from you know versus not so successful people successful doesn't mean that you have to make a lots of money it's just about how you are going about in your life and the and the path of life yeah so many times i heard that moria will either make you or break you and this is so true to everybody but i guess this is a good moment to speak a little bit about the responsibility for this situation because jawad you spoke several times about the complexity of the situation in greece and we heard from ahmed about the conditions in the camp but you're pointing out that not many muslim countries are admitting asylum seekers even muslim asylum seekers and greece was put in a very difficult situation when suddenly such big numbers started crossing back in 2015-2016 and they're still crossing so what is your take on the responsibility yeah it's a complex question with a complex answer um but i will say it straight up um there's only two countries in the world muslim countries that have a mass amount of refugees and and they don't do it by choice it's just because their border touches those two countries like Pakistan and Afghanistan and Syria and Turkey 
Um, and nevertheless, you know, there are a lot of refugees in both of the countries, if not most of them, that are not legal, but they still sort of welcome them aboard. But all these, what really bothers me, and I'll kind of go back and forth in present and past, when the whole Ukrainian um, refugee crisis happened, and this is something that comes up in a lot of Q&As when we do screenings, um, a lot of Muslim people uh, all over the world, including the United States and Canada, they talk about that how, and maybe, you know, maybe there is some truth to it, but I don't think it's entirely that simple. They talk about that how European refugees are treated differently than, you know, non-European. Yeah, but if you look at 2015, the way Europe welcomed refugees, I mean, if you, you know, go through YouTube, yeah, there were some exceptions, of course, that's going to happen. Um, if you go through YouTube news reports from 2015, there's so many cases where people were welcomed with open arms, especially Syrian. Um, and Greece particularly, I when I went into Moria, I literally thought that because that's the narrative of the media, you know, media always likes to take one side um, that Greeks are bad, they're evil, simple. But when I actually went there and I, I I saw it and I talked to more people, it made me realize that this is a very complex situation that and, you know, in 2015, Lesbos Island was nominated for Nobel Peace Prize. So if and then I always sort of try to empathize, you know, living in Canada, I believe we're the only country in the world <clears throat> which doesn't really border with any other country uh, that is, you know, possibly like a refugee crisis other than the United States, which, you know, it doesn't have that kind of crisis. So it's it's difficult to relate to that, but it's also important to understand that what will happen in any country if, you know, in a matter of weeks or months, the population doubles? And how would people who speak about, you know, taking care of refugees, and we should, all of us should, um, would react to that? And I think my answer to that naturally would people would be, people will always look out for themselves first than anyone else. So Europe has, European Union has completely screwed up Greece. They have completely abandoned them and they continue to pour in hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, I think it was like in summer they gave $260 million to Greece to build more camps. I don't know what's the point of building more camps. I just do not understand that. Um, is it because the money is going to go to the people in power and not anywhere else? Or is it just you want to continue on that process and create that division? Um, there is a line in Citizen of Moria, which somebody pointed out to me and I never thought about it. Uh, you know, it's the the woman uh, i forget her name we interviewed a local um and she said is the purpose of getting refugees on mitulini is to get greek people out of here if that's the reason then we will get out and somebody said that's like a cycle of refugees what if they become refugees you know it's it's just sort of it's it's, it's a very complex situation so i hope people understand and empathize there's there's bad apples everywhere and you have to you have you cannot generalize stuff and i i i definitely feel very much in depth for refugees asylum seekers migrants because the amount of things that they go through to get where they are because you can't just leave everything behind for you know having a fun trip to lesbos or anywhere else yeah there will be small number of people who would try to take opportunity that's everywhere but 
I really feel for the Europe, for the Greeks, and I really feel for the um, refugees in general that Europe, you know, first you create all the, sorry, I'm kind of going all over the place, but first you invade all these countries, you create chaos, and then you put on Greece all the pressure to deal with it. And it's it's not fair. It is definitely unfair. I agree with your argument um, regarding the comparison of European refugees and refugees coming from southern nations only to a certain point. Because yes, yes. we definitely have those beautiful examples of Scholastic coming and Nobel Peace Prize. Like there was that journalist who actually said that the uh, I, I don't know the quote, which was really you know bad thing to say that the civilized people are European and the uncivilized people are Afghans and Syrians. He actually said that. Yeah, uh, definitely. And when I think right now about the um, Ukrainian refugees, which I work with every day, and even they, when they learned about the situation of Afghans, Iranians, Syrians, they recognized that none of those nations ever had such great conditions in Europe as they do now. Nobody gave anybody else except for Ukrainians the right to choose the country they will live in, right? And even though we have those beautiful solidarity movements at the very beginning of uh, the crisis on Lesbos and other Greek islands, uh, right now we see when we compare what is happening, for example, at the Polish-Belarusian border and the Ukrainian-Polish uh, border, how, how welcomed Ukrainians are and how unwelcomed other nations are, th that's even impossible to put next to each other, right? 100%. And I think, like I said, it's it, there's variables involved, involved. I'll give you an example. And this was like really heartbreaking. We were in Norway, in Oslo, screening the film. Somebody stood up during the Q&A, I don't know if he was a Muslim or not, but he was uh, Afghan or Syrian descent, said that, or Pakistani descent, said that he stood up and he said the same thing, that, you know, um, Ukrainians have it better and this and that, and, you know, Afghans and Syrians are not being treated properly and Ukrainian, and literally he started kind of bashing Ukrainians. And in the audience, there was a Ukrainian woman who just left her family and she started crying. So mm -hmm. it's so important that you can't, you know, for both, all sides, you can't just generalize stuff. You have to, you have to empathize because everybody's going through some sort of a pain, you know, and we have to relate to that. Um, and my only argument is when Muslim countries talk about, I'm not talking about people, I'm talking about countries, when they talk about the West being like this and like that, like they're being selective, aside from Pakistan of in Turkey, which Muslim country has actually given safety to refugees? At least Europeans have, you know, in a good way or a bad way, that's different. But at least they have done something. So I that that's what bothers me, that you can't just be a hypocrite and say that, you know, European countries are evil and racist, but when you're not even doing anything yourself. Hmm. I absolutely agree with it. And it's, I think, even more relevant right now when it's the end of the World Cup in Qatar, where so many people who have a legit right to claim asylum, I'm not saying that all of them do, but some, they will not receive asylum in Qatar, for example, but they are allowed to work uh, there for absolutely minimum wage and horrible conditions, right?
we know about uh, at least 7,000 deaths while building the stadiums. So uh, I, I definitely agree with the argument that uh, Europe at least gives asylum, at least um, not gives maybe, but um, most European Union countries allow people to claim asylum. Uh, but I still believe that our responsibility as this beacon of human rights should go farther, should, should, should be uh, higher and uh, the standards we should um, provide for refugees should be much, much uh, higher than what we are showing right now. 100%. And, and I, sorry, I, I just feel media is to be blamed for this very heavily because media, you know, if you think about after 9 11, media was not as thoughtful about, you know, Muslim countries as it is now. You know, they were used to say that everybody wearing a hijab, you know, in a very discreet way, they're terrorists or anybody with a beard. Is a and they did that for a good six, seven years. And then they realized that the narrative is not working anymore. So let's change it. So you build all these division in people's mind. And then people and then Trump came into power. Right. Like, look what that did. Right. So it's 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 I'm not justifying anything, but I'm just saying that it's not simple. I think, you know, when you when there's wrong, it needs to be called out. But media is the biggest culprit, um, you know, in creating divisions and then people start looking out for themselves, you know, and that's just human nature. Absolutely. Uh, what I really loved about your movie as well, there are many things I loved about the movie, but uh, Javad, you wanted to make an impact campaign around the, um, the movie, uh, the, an impact campaign saying no more Morias, no more camps in Europe. Uh, how is this going? I assume it's an extremely difficult mission you took upon yourself. Well, it's actually Ahmed and myself both, uh, you know, Ahmed... Um, it was, if it wasn't for Ahmed, obviously this film wouldn't be made, like him allowing us, you know, for, for him to co-direct and to be on camera. Because you can't, you can't have a proper film without a protagonist, you know, otherwise it's just a news story. Um, so how to make that impact? These things take a long time. Maybe I'll be successful uh, and Ahmed will be successful in a very macro level or micro level. But, you know, we, we have been doing a lot of screenings. We've done screenings in Italy, Germany, Netherlands, Norway, UK, Portugal, and a few other countries that I can't remember right now. Uh, but the impact it has had on audiences has been so immense that there have been people at these screenings who knew nothing about Moria or refugee camps than those who worked there as volunteers. Um, and it's 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 getting there, but at the same time, it's not. And you know, my uh, my personal goal is that we want to screen this film in European uh, Parliament, because it's not it's like you said in the beginning. It's always you know we always see news reports, not just in refugee crisis and anything. It's like everything is a number, you know. And you you don't understand somebody's story unless you, you know, journey through with that protagonist. And and I feel Ahmed's story, aside from what his arc and his journey is really brings out the attention that needs to be given to these refugee camps because it's not just about the refugee camps. Again, it's about the wars, you know, that nobody talks about. There's a line in the film which Eric Kempson um, uh, from the whole, whole project says, you know, if you stop all these wars, I can guarantee you that all to 2 million, 3 million refugees are going to go back home because they don't want to be in Europe. And that's true. So we need to 
stop the wars too. So, you know, you can't, that's a part of the campaign that we're trying to push for this. Let's just stop all these invasions. It's not going to be an overnight thing, but let's start with that and then start treating people with respect and start stop looking at them as numbers. You know, um, because even for me, I, I'm just going to say one more thing. Even for me, I don't know many refugees as I know Ahmed, right? I can't understand other refugees' story, no matter how hard I try to the corest, other than Ahmed, because I know Ahmed. So it's about knowing the other pe person, making a friend with the refugee or a local or whatever, trying to understand them. Because when two people talk with opposing views, if you're civilized, you will, you will make progress. And I think that's what needs to be done. And we're hoping to do that with the screening. And it's having a screening. It's having a small impact. And now we're rele we have released the film and people are watching it. You know, they're sending messages to Emma. They're sending messages to me that how much they love the film and how the it's having an impact in their own life, trying to understand what the locals think or trying to understand what the refugees think. And that's, that's sort of a small way of saying mission accomplished. Absolutely, I agree. And uh, we see that we, we need more and more human connections to actually change the situation. Because I believe that most of those bad decisions that force people to live in camps like this come from treating them as numbers and not being really exposed to real human beings, right? You would not yeah. allow your mother, your father, your cousin to live in those conditions like the ones in Moria. You would never, you would do everything to change the situation, but you allow it to allow a stranger to yeah. live in those conditions. It's not just even about what you said, mothers and fathers, which is true, but if you get to know somebody right you 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 make this bond between that person and yourself and you wouldn't want that person to be in that situation so it's it's about and i wish there was a way in the world in all the crisis and the issues is that you get two people with opposing views sit in one room and just talk for you know an hour at the most and you will have a change of heart 100 percent, mm -hmm. both with both sides the citizen of moria the title is so powerful uh, it's catchy as well. Um, and Ahmed, you are the citizen of Moria from the movie. And I would like to ask you, what does that mean to you, to be the citizen of this camp, this infamous camp on Lesbos? It is something like, um, as I think Jawad mentioned a few minutes ago, that that when you get used to live somewhere and you don't have anywhere else to go like you cannot move backward like you cannot move forward it's like stucking somewhere <laughs> like being citizen of moria is something like that like your your hands are tied you cannot move forward you cannot move backward you have to accept the situation and feel it with your bones and just get used to it it's interesting because, you know, after after actually during the fire of Moria, when it was still happening and I started receiving so many messages from the students, one of them was saying, they burned our home. It was a shitty home, pardon my language, but it was our home. And they were telling me that at this point they didn't have anything else. So the home they left behind was no longer an option for them they couldn't see themselves returning to their home countries. So the only option 
with also not knowing what the future may hold for them, was the camp, the Moria, was, was their only hope. So there were so many yeah. citizens of Moria, just like you. Yeah, also in our daily life conversation in Moria, when we were inviting someone to come to our place, we were saying to come our home, like not to our tent or not to our isobox or something. We're inviting like if you're coming to our home. It's funny you mentioned that. I don't know if you guys have seen the series uh, Lost from the early 2000s. There is a scene in that show in one of the, I think season three or four, where the main one of the main characters jack he is already he leaves uh the island where you know they were stuck at and then he comes back home and he becomes an alcoholic and he wants to go back and somebody told me at the screening i'm at the that there's I, i don't know how you feel about this i don't think everybody does but some refugees actually feel like they miss moria they, they want to go back i don't know how that is even possible but maybe there's that connection because you've lived there so long right like Ahmed said it's like home and if you don't have community let's say if you're in Germany or in UK but you have that community in the Moria camp yeah it's interesting that you mentioned the lost uh, because uh, I was thinking the same like when I was there like people like were stalking in, in Lesbos and also Like I was thinking that the other people, the international volunteers, also their mind was stuck in Lesbos because they were always coming back and coming back and coming back. It was like lost, like everybody was stuck there. Ahmed, this is <laughs> such an important point you're making because it seems like Lesbos is this place that attracts people and strangely not for that many good reasons, you know? It's, it's not... It's not the... It's a beautiful island, but because it doesn't have sandy beaches, it's maybe not such a touristic island. Um, it's very like a Greek tu touristic. But I've been living there for four years. I moved to Athens this year and I miss it dearly. I also saw all of those international volunteers. I have so many friends who kept coming back there, felt like there is something attracting them. And I know, also know... Uh, members of refugee community who were living inside the camp then got some kind of a house housing in the city but couldn't enjoy it and i've been told that living among greeks when they do not feel very welcomed they would rather go back to the camp where they already have their communities there like ladies group where they meet every day and they chat and do their things men play um, backgammon or chess like there is a sense of community in this misery uh, where no one no, nowhere else maybe you would bond with people on that that level right i i also think it's aside from the community thing it's it's just this thing about you know Because everybody is talking about the same thing on the island of Lesbos, right? Different point of views. You know, locals will talk about the refugees need to get out. The volunteers would want to help the refugees and refugees want to get out. So they're all connected to this one thread. And, and I think that's, aside from the community thing, which you're right, is so important. But that's what unifies everybody, that thread that I want to help in a certain way or I don't want to help in a certain way, but it's that one thread that connects them all. Yeah. And I find it very also ironic because 
First of all, uh, Citizen of Moria was released on December 10th, the International Human Rights Day, extremely symbolic. And also because I remember that at some point somebody made this really huge graffiti on the front wall of Moria saying, welcome to Moria, the human rights graveyard. It stayed there for years, at least two years. I remember they uh, painted a white paint over it finally when I think the president of the Hellenic Republic came with a visit. Um, so that, that was the big shame. Uh, but this was considered the graveyard of human uh, human rights, or it was maybe showing that those uh, human rights are made for Europeans, not for any other uh, nations. And to start wrapping up our conversation, Ahmed, I would like to go back to you and ask you a little bit about the situation in Afghanistan at the moment, and um, at the moment when Taliban took over because we know that you left without your family your wife and your kids were um, uh, your wife and your kids stayed in Afghanistan and they were there when the Taliban uh, entered Kabul if you could share a little bit of how it was for them to live there without you and how is the current situation in Afghanistan um, the first day that Taliban took over uh, Everybody was in shock. Um, just my my older daughter, she said, I don't afraid them and I want to go to school. <laughs> yeah, she said like that. And but everybody like was was shocked. Woman was shocked because they couldn't go to work anymore. And because they had like a very bad memory from uh, previous time when Taliban was in power in Afghanistan, uh, women were crying. They couldn't go to work. Most, many of my friends, like my my ex colleagues, when I was there, they were like very angry. They were like crying. And Afghan film, the head of yeah. Afghan film, she she runs away, and many people were running away. And it was so difficult for my family as well because. Like my daughter, suddenly they couldn't go to school even they were kids, but but my family and myself, we were very afraid of sending them to, to the school because before many things were happening to the girls at a school, they were poisoning. Few times they were poisoned. Um, some yes, yeah, some some girls school. Uh, they were they have been attacked, and also like before that many 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 times, uh, schools were attacked by Taliban as a terrorist attacks. But when Taliban came, everybody were in shock, and we couldn't believe that that we can. Um, believe in Taliban, believe in their words, and that's why like um, nobody could go out. My wife and kids, they were staying all the time at home. Maybe even if they were going out sometimes, they, sh they were wearing burqa. Um, it was a very difficult situation. And it still is, and we know that so many people are still trying to leave 
it is difficult because the passport offices were closed for a long time. Taliban uh, would control the roads. Many people crossed to Pakistan and um, signed for UNHCR list to be transferred to different countries. But this traditional road from Afghanistan via Iran to Turkey and then to Greece is no longer that open. It's actually very close because of the wall between Iran and Turkey. Still, some people make it. But in the context of all of this, I want to ask how do you see the situation evolving in the next months and maybe years, year? Um, do you think more Afghans may still try to reach Europe, given the situation in their country right now? I think, to be honest, um, just to get back to your previous question, the situation is still worse. Women cannot go to school. They cannot go. They still cannot go to work. And there is not human rights. They... It is difficult situation. There is no. There is no job. There is no work. Many men who are working as a journalist, as a filmmaker, they, they are jobless, and they are. They are selling some fruits in the street, something like that. Uh, there are there is still like tourist attack is still happening at the schools, at weddings, mostly in the in Shia areas, mostly in Hazara areas. And um, yes, and also every one of my friends, like all of them, like all of my cousins, like everyone asking a way of out of Afghanistan. Nobody wants to stay because if they cannot work, if their daughters and their sisters, they cannot go to school, like who wants to stay in that kind of situation? Like everybody wants to live. Like out of 36, 37 million people, maybe like 32 million wants to live like immediately, but there is no um, way out. I hope I'm wrong, but the way, if you look at the pattern of Afghanistan, right, like, you know, Afghanistan used to be such a liberal country, like, if you pull up videos or photos from the 60s and the 70s, you know, in Kabul, uh, main city, like, you know, women would go to school with skirts up to their knees and all that stuff, and then the Russian war happened, uh, the Americans, the, the Pakistanis, and a bunch of other Muslim countries, you know, trained the Mujahideen, and then they abandoned them. And then that sort of led into, like, you know, different fractions, including Taliban. And then 9-11 happened, and America came back, America invaded Afghanistan. And, you know, throughout 20 years of America being there, there were bombs, there were attacks, terrorist attacks, and America left again. And now Taliban's are back. Based on that historical arc, I just feel, and I hope I'm wrong, within 10 years, some nation will invade Afghanistan again. It could be, it could be United States, it could be UK, it could be anybody. And Afghanistan has become a playing ground for so many nations, right? And, and, and I, 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 like I said, I hope I'm wrong, but I just don't see, and if that happens again, it's this is thing. This whole thing is going to start again. The refugee crisis, and again, it will lead into this chaos and more division about among people and point of views. And we need and this. This is in the hands of the public of those countries like ours, you know, United States and Canada. 
to stop these countries from wars, but it all, uh, you know, boils down to making money and, you know, and selling arms or poppy in Afghanistan and all that stuff. So I, I, I hope I'm wrong, but it's such, it's such a shame that how Afghanistan is like a playing ground for all these Western countries. And it needs to stop because it's going to affect their, those Western countries' public lives as well. There's going to be more division. Absolutely. And I think it's, um, it's a very good way to end this conversation, to have it in mind that our decisions, the Western powers' decisions, actually impact lives of uh, people in so many uh, countries. Uh, I want to tell you, Jawad and Ahmed, that the movie was so expected by so many people that I remember one Polish person asking me two years ago, so way before the movie was finished, how can they watch it already? They wanted to organize a screening in Poland for students to educate them. So it is a very important uh, movie and now everybody can see it. It's on demand and we encourage absolutely everybody to see it. Jawad, Ahmed, thank you very much for your time and speaking to us about such important issues. Thank you for listening to Fractured. Our podcast is produced by Refocus Media Lab citizen journalists from Afghanistan, Iran, Ukraine and many other countries. It is partly financed by Alliance Foundation and Choose Love. However, it is thanks to donations from individual people like you that we can continue our mission of teaching media skills to refugees and asylum seekers and give them a platform to showcase their work. So if you value this podcast and our work, please support us on refocusmedialabs.org forward slash donate.